Good afternoon, people. It is Wednesday, <clears throat> September the 12th. Oh, sorry, September the... Yeah, September the 12th. And it is, oh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's a really pretty day up in West Texas. It's not a cloud in the sky. It's 84 degrees. Fall's coming on. Light's changing. It's my absolute favorite time of the year. <clears throat> so let's... Uh, Let's get into it with Bitcoin and J.J. Thompson. You'll figure out who that is in a minute. I'm your host, David Bennett, for This is Bitcoin and, Episode 6. So let's, uh, it is Bitcoin and, so let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin before we get into the, to the main subject here. Uh, Bitcoin price, not as of recording, but as of writing down the, uh, Information from my outline for today's show is six thousand three hundred and four dollars, um, <clears throat> and yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a weird weird last couple of days. Where what we've got is we've got Bitcoin kind of holding, you know, at like maybe like a one percent loss. <clears throat> Uh, like a point four, you know, go to point four. Be like, you know, if you look at a trading view or some kind of charting, you know, software or whatever, you'll just kind of see it bounce around and it's low losses or, or low gains. And it's been that way for like, God, like 72 hours now. While the rest of the market, again, I'm not going to say it's like, you know, a bloodbath, but yeah, there's, there's rivulets of blood flowing in the street on this one. Ethereum, <clears throat> my heart go, goes out to you guys that are bag holding Ethereum. I mean, I'm sorry. I really am. I, I think sometime around earlier today, I looked and it was $176 on Bitfinex. And like I said, man, my heart goes out to you. Uh, I just holding that bag just that's just got to suck to watch this because you know what's you know what's going to happen at one point or another. All these ICOs that took Ethereum to develop their their platforms, um, they're all standing in a room looking at each other, wondering who's going to pull the trigger first and and flush the bags because they're going to need to get that money to be able to do the development that they've been telling, you know, told everybody that they were going to do. I think, I think the bloodbath is yet still to come. I, and so what I'm seeing here is I'm seeing lots of, of single digit, you know, double digit loss losses across the, the shit coin sphere. And I'm only seeing, you know, half a percent loss you know, a quarter percent loss, three quarter percent loss in, in Bitcoin. So what I think is going on is that I think people are like bailing out of their ICO bags, their their alt bags, um, because <clears throat> well, they're and, and they're taking those profits and they're putting them into Bitcoin. I, I think there, I think a lot of people, I think the tree is shaking so hard at this point that it's like the whole ecosystem is being shaken by a tremendous storm and everybody's wanting to go to the biggest, strongest, toughest ass tree that they can find. And that toughest ass tree is Bitcoin. 
It has been that way. It's always going to be that way. Anybody that tells you different either doesn't know what the hell they're talking about or they are completely full of shit. And I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. Buy Bitcoin. I don't say buy Ethereum. I don't say buy Doge, I, I, even though I have Doge. I'm not screaming for people to go buy Numerair, right? Because all this is crap. It's all crap. You want Bitcoin. And, you know, like, you know, anyway, so <laughs> it's it's kind of awful. And that's the only, the only way that I can, ca- you know, even think about how to calculate why it is that Bitcoin isn't suffering the kind of losses that all the rest of these poor things are is because somebody's buying it because I, I guarantee you that there's a lot of Bitcoin holders that are freaking out too in general and those are, these are the newbies these are the guys that are getting tired of looking at their loss that they've got sitting on paper and they're just going to go ahead and punch out so they're selling but the guys that have been in for a long time that are holding bags of crap they're selling those bags of sorry what happens uh, when you get on the highway, you get into road construction, and that's what that was. Anyway, <clears throat> they're holding these bags, that were, and they're getting rid of these bags, and they're buying what the newbies, the Bitcoin that the newbies are selling. So that's pretty much what I'm, that's how I'm kind of reading this play. Um, Roger Ver, just, Roger Ver has been on a debate me screamathon lately, and, and this this last thing with this cruise, this crypto cruise, where he was just getting all over Jimmy Song, he's getting all over <clears throat> um, Tone Vase, and I, I and I can only assume any like it's almost as if anybody in the room he wants a debate, and the only debate that he has is the same talking points that he's had since the whole uh, scaling debate started, you know, really started cranking up a couple of years ago and definitely through, you know, 2017. And it's every time I listen to him, that's why I don't listen to him anymore because he doesn't have anything new to say. It's the same talking points. And I swear to God, we're professionally produced for him by a marketing firm. And he had the tenacity to sit there and memorize every single argument or talking point, or, you know, counter argument on those talking point, counters, counters of the counters of those talking points, so that he can walk into any room, anywhere, at any time, without a slip of paper in his hand, and seemingly own the room simply by debate me. We all know, I mean, most of, most of us that have been around for a while, even like I used to like Roger, it's not that I don't like him. It's just I don't like his message anymore. I used to love his message. Used to be great, but now it's just it's just gotten weird, sick, twisted, and I'm you know the whole B cash thing. I'm just done. I you know, I, thank God I sold that bag as soon as I as soon as I got it. You know I, I I think I got it. I was in Colorado. I couldn't do anything about it because I'm just not gonna you know screw with my vacation to go do that. You know go down find a Wi-Fi because. We go to Colorado, man. We ain't exactly dealing with high-speed internet. Not where we are. So I have to run into Durango, go sit down at Starbucks, you know, borrow my sister's laptop, you know, get a, you know, wallet up on there. No, no. So I waited till I got home, 
and sold it, and I can't even remember what the price is. And tell you the truth, I don't freaking care. That was just that shit was just burning a hole in my pocket. So I don't know. To, to me, this whole debate me thing going on right now is just I don't. It sounds like an act of desperation. And with Bitcoin or Bcash's price crashing sub 0.07, I mean, it's sub 7% of the price of Bitcoin. It has been on a steady decline. And they, they try to pump it, they try to pump it, they try to pump it. It's just been going, nowadays it's just going down, down, down. You got the whole <clears throat> uh, Craig Wright, Jihan Wu, Bitcoin, Bitcoin ABC, you know, the, 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 uh, the release candidate for, you know, Bcash, they're talking about a, you know, a fork and I don't know, man, it's just, God, it's just such a circus. And why, why you would even contemplate holding a bag that is run by a bunch of clowns is beyond my comprehension. So, here's the thing about a cruise ship, okay? Because you once you get on that cruise ship, until they port, you're not getting off that cruise ship. So if you're on a ship with a whole bunch of people that are either that you don't like or getting in your face or screaming to debate me all damn day, that's your own fault. It's your own fault for going on a stupid crypto cruise. Don't go on crypto cruises. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't waste my money. I wouldn't waste my time. And you know what? I tried watching the the Jimmy Song, um, uh, Roger Ver debate. I, I can't get past a minute of it. I can't get past a minute of it. it. It's like and it's like they're talking to an empty room. It's almost like I'm looking at it going. I, I've been to concerts where I've, my heart heart went out to the band because they were playing to 15 people and they had a whole road show with them. And it's just like, God, you, you poor dumb sons of bitches. It feels so horrible for you. All right. So that's enough of <clears throat> what's going on in Bitcoin. It's weird landscapes, people. You know, this is not investment advice. Buy Bitcoin. All right. So JJ Thompson, why am I going to talk about this guy? Well, we'll, we'll get into that. Let's talk about who he is. J.J. Thompson in 1897 was the man who discovered the electron. Of course, you don't really discover the electron. You kind of figure out what this thing that you've known. You knew something existed. You just couldn't characterize it. There were certain things about it that you just couldn't wrap your mind around. So eh, discovery of the electron is is kind of, I don't know. I, I get a little weird when I you know, say that because you're not really, like I said, you're not really discovering it, but be that as it may, he discovers the electron and he did that through a series of experiments. But one of the pivotal ones was the use of what was called a modified parent tube. And the modified parent tube is sort of like one of the very first cathode ray tubes. And what it does is you, you hook this thing up to a high energy source battery you know, something like that. And it boils off um, electrons <clears throat> from the, uh, oh God, I'm going to get this wrong, anode. And 
and it's going to try to go to ground. So the cathode part of the, of the ray tube is sort of the acceptor. So you've got this thing that boils off electrons, and then those electrons pass through this tube, and then it does something on the other end. And that something that it did on the other end is what helped J.J. Thompson characterize the nature of the electron. You know, and be able to say, yeah, it's a subatomic particle. Because this is the first time we kind of found, you know, there was theories about the, you know, atomic structure. But no one really knew, not in, certainly not in 1897. <clears throat> there was only theories of the structure of the, of the atom. Well, Perrin, the, the fact that he, uh, or not Perrin, Thompson, and the fact that he found this thing or characterized this thing pretty much nailed the, the, the case shut that, yeah, the atomic structure that was theorized at that point, <clears throat> which was a simple model, it's not like the model that we have now, was indeed correct. It was a huge deal. I mean, it's a big, 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 big deal. <clears throat> so, you know, he write, you know, writes the fa this famous paper. It's like a, you know, like a white paper because they didn't kind of do the same type of peer review in science that we do now. Um, and it changed it changed the course of uh, of history and ushered in the age what well, was going to usher in the age of electronics because that cat same cath that same modified parent tube slash cathode ray tube was the precursor to all the screens that you look at today like if anybody was you know born pre-1980 at one point or another you were looking at a screen there was a huge cathode ray tube, and that's how it was printing information on the screen for your eyes to pick up. So, <clears throat> um, why I'm, so again, the, the question becomes, why am I talking about this? Well, this is a Bitcoin and J.J. <clears throat> Thompson, but it's really about a Bitcoin and gaming, right? One of the, one of the five pillars of the things that I talk about. Um, and, and this is more going to be more along the lines of scientific visualization and using the same types of tools that are used to make video games, but instead of making video games with them, making a scientific visualization. And where this came from was, you know, th this actually came out of a graduate, a graduate class that I attended that was uh, called scientific communications. And it was essentially like how, you know, how, what kind of information is presented in scientific literature? Literature of all types, right? You know, academic literature, fiction literature, nonfiction literature. You know, how is science presented to, you know, to the, <clears throat> how is it, or how many different types, different ways that science can be presented to different audiences? And it sort of, so, so it sort of covered the gambit. So obviously, you know, one point or another, there, you know, there's going to be a final paper or, you know, some kind of project. And within a couple of days, I knew the exact project that I was going to pick <clears throat> because the J.J. Thompson paper was part of one of the readings that we had because it was one of the, you know, earliest examples of scientific literature, at least in the modern age. And so the thing about it was is that after reading the paper, what became really, really clear is that because that experiment was done so long ago, and, and if you look at the tube, the, the modified parent tube, and and they somebody points at that tube and says, hey, look, this is what they used to characterize the electron. 
You have no freaking idea how. You, you, a, you didn't do the experiment. B, you don't have the background to do the experiment. So you, don't, you have zero idea. You have no context. How the hell can this funky-ass looking glass tube help somebody characterize the, the electron? So what I set out to do was to translate the J.J. Thompson paper of the discovery of the electron and the known models of the modified parent tube into a 3D animation that you could watch and get a sense of what was going on in that experiment. So, uh, <clears throat> so to recap, I made a 3D animation using nothing but a couple of photographs and a white paper and was able to build was able to build a 3D animation that I can play for people and I got interrupted by the phone again <clears throat> so you know build a 3D animation in a 3D animation package and then render out frames and then edit them together with sound to make a deliverable that was about, you know, like a couple of minutes long that shows the tube and what's going on inside that tube. So, the, you know, reading the paper several times and doing bunches of Google searches and images trying to find the, you know, not, I didn't even need to find the original parent tube because, you know, they knew how to build them at the time. They weren't mass manufactured. They were kind of like hand built whenever somebody needed to do some kind of funky experiment like this. But you know, they 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 still exist. They're they're still out there. And this one, the picture that I got came out of a museum that um, uh, a replica was, or not a replica, but um, uh, one of the circulating parent tubes of of the contemporary time was actually stored. And um, so between those two. I'm able to actually get a, get a sense of what the 3D model that you're going to look at looks like and the activity, and, and that comes from the picture, but the activity that goes on inside that tube where there's streaming electrons and the things that go on in that experiment to characterize that they are indeed electrons, <clears throat> that actually comes from having to read the paper. So between the paper and the, the image references, I'm a, I was able to actually build this thing. So <clears throat> the next step is understand, first thing to understand, or that I had to understand, is if, I, if I'm going to do a visual representation of this, how in the hell am I going to show you an electron? You can't see them. They're too small. If you get shocked by one, you'll feel it. And if there's a whole ton of them bunched up together, you get lightning. And yeah, you can see that. Or sparks, you know, or like, you know, little little tiny lightning streamers that you get from a, a what is it? I think it's called a Van der Graaff generator. Uh, you know, those types of things. Yeah, but in this one, you know, it's like if I were to, to run this experiment, it would be kind of hard for you to see the electron stream unless there was some kind of indicator that you know so like you know you don't see wind you see the trees blowing in the wind the tree is the indicator of the wind 
So I got it. The, the first problem was how in the world am I going to represent an electron? Well, that was a, a little easy <clears throat> because all I could all I could really you know have to think of is the fact that we can we generally go to school books about chemistry or electric you know stuff or anything that's going to talk about atomic you know the atomic theory um, is going to characterize protons, neutrons, and electrons pretty much the same way as a circle or a sphere. So I got a target right. So okay, okay. Now in Houdini, I can figure out. I, I can just build a sphere and say, okay, this is my model of the electron. And yeah, that <clears throat> that works. But there's a, so much more that's going on to this because a, I got to get this sphere moving. And and b, I have to have this sphere going in a particular direction, and. This goes back to the nature of the parent tube. And I'm, I am definitely going to link the video that I did as a companion piece to this podcast. And we'll publish it together. So the, the video will the video link will be in with the um, with the, the publication of this podcast. But when you go to it, you'll end up going to a YouTube video and uh, and watching what I'm talking about. But let's talk a little bit about the 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 parent tube, the way it's shaped, it's like two ball. It's two bolt glass bulbs that are connected together by a th- much thinner glass rod. So think of two balls that are stuck together on a, on a rod, and one of those balls <clears throat> is where the electrons boil off at, and then the and then there, it just sprays electrons everywhere, everywhere. I mean, it just goes everywhere. But I need, but in the cathode ray, as, or the and the modified parent tube is sort of like a cathode ray. The word ray, right there, means oh, a thin ray of some of something shooting out. In this case, a ray of electrons. You think of it like a laser or a ray gun or something like that. So <clears throat> that first chamber is simply where the electrons explode out of the material that's being, um, the electrons are boiling off of material that's being um, charged up uh, bigly by a battery. That tube that's in the middle of the two spheres is, you can think of it as a directional filter. The only electrons that are gonna be able to get through that tube just happen to be the electrons that boil off of the, out of the main, out of the main bulb. If they're off axis by any degree whatsoever, they're going to hit either the glass of the bulb in the first chamber or like the lining of the tube that connects the two chambers. But there's going to be a a fraction, a very small fraction of these electrons that are going to have just the right aspect and just the right vector to go straight down this tube. And then they're going to emerge from the other side of that tube into the other bulbous chamber. <clears throat> okay, so I so not only do I have electrons, I have elect I have a mass of electrons, and I've got to represent the boiling off of a massive amount of electrons, and the fact that I've got electrons that happen to be just with like I said, just the vector enough to get through that central neck, that that tube that connects. 
So one of the things that Houdini and most 3D, you know, 3D animation packages, I can't imagine not having a particle system in any 3D animation package. A particle system is sort of a way that you can generate, well, particles <clears throat> and make them do certain things. So like uh, particle systems in real life or, or real life situations that can be represented in 3D by a particle system fireworks going off in the air. You got one particle that goes straight up. You've got thousands of street of, of particles that are being left behind because that's the gas, the charged gas that's uh, being left behind as, as the uh, thing. Uh, what do they call it? The, the explosive is going up. Then the thing explodes. A whole bunch more particles come out. Then those particles explode and a whole bunch of more particles come out. And I can give these particles like different colors, how long they how long they live, uh, what direction that they like you know so like I can make particles that react to gravity by simulating it in 3D because the tool sets are there. So a particle you know other particle systems are used to like do water like in um, um, some of the older 3D movies um, use particle systems for water. We don't use that a whole lot anymore, but uh, particle systems used to be used for fire, for smoke. You know, any like dust that's blowing around is a great, uh, great thing to apply a particle system to. Um, trash blowing around, you know, the, these types of things are all like, especially if there's a lot of them. If it's just one or two things, you may not want to use a particle system. But in this case, I got, I got a lot of electrons boiling out of that first chamber, like you know, in, in reality is trillions, right? In the visual, like the way, since I just have to represent what's going on in a, in a quality, quality way, I'm not going to deal with trillions. I'm going to deal with, you know, thousands, right? So I set up a particle system <clears throat> and put the, uh, set up a particle system in the, the first bulb of, of the apparatus and then I've got to figure out a way to map the electron particle that at right now is just a sphere. That, the way particle systems work in a lot of ways, if, if you want the particle to actually be a certain shape, you can say, hey, every particle that boils out of the, that comes out of the emitter, you need to come out with an instance of this model and you tell it what model it is you want. And then every particle that comes out can come out with a sphere or a swimming fish or a flying bird. Whatever model, animated or not, can be mapped to every single particle that comes out of a particle system. All right, so that's, that's exactly what I did. So now I've got this sphere mapped to um, every particle that's coming out of the, the, that first chamber. Well, the particle itself is just a sphere. Well, it doesn't look really good because the other aspect of this is not to just represent what's going on. It's to try to, to have, you know, to be not visually spectacular, but, you know, have visual interest. Like where you're like, wow, that, that tube really does look like glass or wow, that I'm getting a sense that there's something about that, that thing that looks like it might be a charged particle, i.e. an electron. And... <clears throat> And that's what I tried to do in this. This isn't just sort of like, you know, a stick figure model that's going on. This is, you know, like there's materials mapped to it. Things look like glass. Things look like they're, you know, got 
things look like the electrons look like they're sparking. So, you know, it it's it's a, a visual interest kind of thing. So, right now I've got a I've got an electron that's just a, a sphere that looks like a ball of gray clay, and that's not very interesting. So, w- what I had to do was like, well, how do how do I impart the nature of an electron to this sphere? And then at that point you start thinking about, well, what is electricity? And you just think sparks, or you think lightning bolts. Or you think about like, you know, like you get popped by a little thing of static electricity and you see that little ray that, that goes in between your finger and, and whatever, you know, the car, car handle that you touched or whatever. So I started thinking, how can I get this sphere? And, and we also associate color, blue, specifically a very, 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 very white blue. Like, and where does that come from? We've all seen lightning. We're used to it. We grew up with it. These are, you know, like we see a spark. It's it's white, hot, and with a bluish tint to it. So that was the color scheme that I used for this particular for for this particular application. So not only did I so I made the the ball. I, I mapped a material onto it that made it look like it was bright and glowing, and had you know a bluish tinge that was really really, you know very light blue and it it and I also had it where it would emit you know sort of like its own lights it became its own light source <clears throat> so that it would glow in relation to all the rest of the things in the scene but you know that just it just didn't do it it just looked like a bunch of marbles that you know it, it didn't impart electricity so I had to do something else so I hacked or hacked a system that would connect two lines or, or connect the ends of a line like one end to you know some you know like one point a to like uh, you know another object's you know point B or something like that. So what I did is I took this electron, made it glow, and then I wrapped another sphere around it, but you can't see that sphere. And then I randomized the, a line to always appear in, you know, between um, some point, some random point on the inner sphere and some random point on the outer sphere. And I colored that, you know, blue and blue and white, the same color as, you know, the same color scheme as the, um, as the, the, uh, the core sphere itself. And because it was, you know, randomized, it, it, when, when I mean randomized, it doesn't just pop up once in, in a random place and the second electron comes up and it looks different. No, like if you just look at one electron, you know, it cycles. And like, so like every once in a while, you'll, you'll just see like a little lightning bolt pop out of it. And that did it for me. I, I looked at it and said, wow, that looks like electricity. It's not at all. It's a complete lie, right? It does, electricity doesn't look like that. It, it doesn't. But it's a representation. And that's what we, you know, one of the things that, that I like about scientific visualization is recasting something that you can't see into something that you can see, but understanding that you're, you're going to have to take, you know, some uh, quite a bit of, li- you know, uh, liberties with what's going on. So you have to figure out what's going to be the best, you know, the best possible representation. And this is what I came up with. So now I've got a part, I've got this ball that looks like it's got sparks flying off of it. 
And then each, and then I map that to every single one of these thousands of particles that's going on in the main chamber. But there's a problem because I'm not dealing with trillions of particles. And I tried. I, I actually, I actually tried this. Not trillions of particles, but I made the model actually have a hole down the neck. And I, I, I instructed the particles every time the particle hit <clears throat> um, hit the ge- the uh, inside geometry of the glass. It was supposed. It, it. I had ordered it to disappear, and it and it does. It does that. So anytime one of these particles hit, you know, it, uh, intersects another piece of geometry in that scene, it just dies immediately. It never it never crosses. So even if I cranked up the the particle emission number to like you know tens of thousands, and at this point I'm starting, you know, you start bogging down your computer because it's got to simulate all this. I never could get a single electron that had the absolute perfect vector to travel down that tube, right? So that's a problem because I got to have electrons looking like they're coming out of the other end of the tube. So what do you do? You copy the first emitter and all of its properties, including, you know, taking that blue model and mapping it to every particle that's coming out and moved it to the end of the, of to the end of the glass tube so that it looks like it's co- coming out in, um, in, into the second chamber. And I had to really modify that particular, um, that particular emitter so that it looked like it was coming out as a stream instead of coming out all over the place, right? And the tools in Houdini allow me to do that. It's, you know, I, I, there, there's, you know, it's a, very, it's a, one of the greatest 3D animation packages I've ever seen. So here's the, the other part of the, the experiment. So now we've got electrons boiling off at one end, going through the tube, and coming out into the other end. Now there's a, there's a flange, a glass flange that's part of the second part of the tube that comes out at an angle, and on the uh, glued to the end of that are two pieces of foil that are, uh, that are together. In the original experiment, they would um, JJ would either use a magnet or or another additional electrical field to bend the stream of electrons. And by and the reason that he did that was to get it into this apparatus. And when the stream had just the perfect curvature, and it was entering into this 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 like appendix kind of thing that hangs off this the second uh, second ball. It would enter into that tube and strike the once it got into the proper angle and, and hit not just the sides of that little tube, but down all the way at the base where there was a little that the little foil kind of came through the glass, and that foil would start collecting up the electrons. Since there's two pieces of foil, what do we know about two things that are charged? With the same uh, with the same charge, either positive or negative, well, they repel each other, right? So these two foil things, when they got enough electrons uh, kind of swimming around their surface, they'd actually fly apart and 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 stay that way until the electron load was taken off of them, and then they just kind of come back together. <clears throat> and that's how they knew that they were de- you know that was one of the things that characterized uh, the electron was the fact that now they're, they, they know that this thing is, consists of, you know, a single, you know, a single charge. So 
the thing with the emitter is I've got it running out in a straight line. The second emitter is running out in a straight line. How the hell do I get it to bend? Well, it so happens that in these 3D animation packages, especially Houdini, the better the package, the better the tool set. The better the tool set, the easier it is to do really funky things like make particles emitted from a particle system follow a line. And in this case, that's what I did. I just put an invisible line from the emitter to exactly where I wanted the electrons to eventually end up and then bent that line and record, um, recorded that as, a, as an animation with what's called... Um, um, oh, man. God, I hate it when I, when I can't remember basic terms of my own craft. Um, keyframes. Um, and I won't... I guess I should get into a little bit of what a keyframe is. Um, a keyframe is like I draw set, like I draw a ball and then I like you know I, I need that ball to go to the other side of the paper. So I draw a ball on the other side of the paper. That's my second keyframe. Then I can interpolate between the two keyframes where the ball needs to be at any given time so I can draw like a whole bunch like draw a whole bunch of balls. And this is sort of the way that they, you know, well, this is the way animation's been done ever since animation has been born. Like the old Bugs Bunny cartoons, it wasn't one animator <clears throat> that was, you know, like sitting down and drawing, like, you know, all of what Bugs Bunny did. Now, you had a keyframe animator that would, that would basically do, like, you know, here he jumps, here he lands, here he's walked over to the tree, here he's dodged the bullet from Elmer Fudd's gun. Right, those are all keyframes. It's up to a whole other set of animators to fill in the gaps, and that's what these, what the uh, you know modern you know 3D animation package does is you set keyframes and it interpolates where things need to be to get from from keyframe A to keyframe B. So all I did was just lock down the side of the line that was from that was uh, connected to the uh, second particle emitter, and then I just bent. Like it started the keyframe at like where it was a straight line, and then my second keyframe was uh, the end of the line ended up being exactly where it needed to be by those little foil plates in that second uh, in that appendix is coming off that second bulb, and then I just lit Houdini interpolate. Made, I made had to make some modifications, but essentially that's what I did. Well, since the particle system, since I can instruct the particles that are being emitted out of the particle system to track a target, I told it, you need to track this target. And as that line moved down, lo and behold, all the electrons streaming out of that second emitter come along for the ride, and it makes it appear as if, and I've got, I've got a, a magnet that's actually coming in. As, as the line bends down, which you can't actually see the line, all you see is the electrons following the, the line. What's going on is that in that same scene, there's a... Um, a magnet that's coming up, and as that magnetic field enters, starts uh, starts putting its uh, influence on the stream of electrons coming out of the second emitter, it bends. That's the sec one of the second pieces of how they knew they were dealing with electrons. It was one of the ways the magnet bending the line was one of the ways that it characterized the electron. The fact that there was a charge on these foil plates or these foil strips 
was another way that they were able to characterize the electron. And then they did like two more experiments to fill in the gaps. But this one, this one was what the one experiment that really put them on their on, on put JJ on track. So now I've got I've got the the glass tube built, the the the, the modified parent tube from the uh, image reference, and I've got all of the guts and feathers of what's going on in this experiment, you know, happening inside the tube with you know the production of the electron, the char- visual characterization of it. Um, the fact that I had need to kind of fool people into believing that, you know, like, you know, finally these, these electrons, you know, come out of the end of the, you know, the very end of the tube after being, you know, directionally filtered by the, the neck. I've got all that, and all that came out of the fact that I'm reading this paper trying to figure out how this experiment works and then translating that into visual space. So that's, again, you know, like that's, one of the ways that you know these technologies can be used for things other than what they were meant to be used for, and I, I loved I loved that about this particular project. So you know I just want to recap a, recap a little bit as to why why do I do this, and one is because thing this was done in 1897. And there wasn't a camera, movie camera, or, or any kind of recording device in existence that would have been able to capture that experiment and archive it so that people could go, oh, I understand how the modified parent tube works in this context. Oh, I, I understand what the foil thing was for. Oh, I understand why there's a, a, a primary boil, you know, electron boil off chamber, a neck, and then a secondary chamber. It starts. It starts to make sense. You can't. Th- those those recording devices didn't exist, and it you know, at least not in a, not in a sense that was able would be able to pick up the nuances of a stream of electrons. So, you know, by doing this, I'm visualizing that which would would never have been able to be recorded on film. Okay, so that's one reason. The other reason is there's a lot of stuff that goes on in science that even if you could record it, you can't see it. It's too small, or it's too far away, or it doesn't lend itself to being able to be touched, tasted, smelled, seen, or heard, or even divined, right? It's just the math is there, but the only way to see it is to visualize it using tools like this. And I think it's a really important part of science is being able to tell the population in, in, in you know, in ways that, that are visually stimulating how the hell something works. Now, we see this all the time in documentaries about, like, a documentaries about the sun. They use visualization stuff all the time. But for the more esoteric stuff, like the discovery of the electron, uh-uh, it's not done. And, you know, the discovery of the electron is kind of important, people. Without it, you're not on your computer because your computer doesn't exist. You're writing everything out by hand or a, or a, a manual typewriter because electricity doesn't exist. You're lighting candles because electricity doesn't exist. You know, I mean, we kind of owe a lot to J.J. Thompson and the discovery of the electron. But I, and in owing that, that debt, 
is one of the reasons why I thought it was important to do it, you know, a project like this is like, how do you see what is essentially unseen? Yes, we can see a lightning bolt. That's a shit ton of electrons. They're not pushing that many electrons through this apparatus. You're not going to be able to see it. There are apparatuses that you can see the ray in it. That's not how this experiment was going down. You don't need that much. And if you don't need that much, it's also one of the reasons why the foil was there. So they could tell if the stream actually got bent by the magnet. It was their visual indicator. Why? They couldn't see the stream of electrons. It was too weak. But here, I can take that weakness and just add power to it to where you finally can see it. And that's, I don't know, scientific visualization is really important. Always has been, always will be. So how do we connect this up to Bitcoin? <laughs> Cheesiest way possible. <clears throat> uh, block explorers. You can't see Bitcoin. You can't see transactions. It's just, it's just computer code flying around in binary, you know, binary form. And to get a handle on all that information, you, you need a block explorer. And a block explorer, in a, in a, uh, some are better than others, but you know, in a visual way, lets you know where your Bitcoin went. Because without it, you're, you can't track it. You can't say, how many confirmations do I have? Do I have six confirmations yet? I'm waiting on that 10 minute mark. You know, all these things are represented in a block explorer. How much time has gone by? How many confirmations does it have? What wallet address is it going to? What wallet did it come from? You know, did, you know, was change, uh, was change made? You know, how do we visualize the UTXO set when you're visualizing every single thing back to the very first block that was ever done? You know, right? Right? I mean, and, and, and that gets into like a, the, not even a block explorer, but like a, basically a, a visualizer for a, a, a block stream network or a block stream, um, a, a blockchain network is that like the whole, there was a Russian guy that was picked up a few, I don't know, man, it was like more than a handful of months ago, maybe even last year. I can't even remember when it happened. Somehow or another, connected to connected to a, a, a great big uh, exchange going down. I don't think it was pretty. Sh- I don't know if it was Mount Gox or not. I don't think it was. No, wait a minute. I think it was because there were there were coins stolen from Mount Gox. Anyway, <coughs> with <coughs> sorry, <coughs> with the uh, visualizers. <clears throat> some people were able to trace exactly where those those uh, stolen Gox coins went. And it resulted in the arrest of this, I want to say it's a Russian guy, and I can't remember where he was. He, I think maybe it was Italy. I, I can't remember. But the deal is, is that this visualization, it takes a whole bunch of information that if it was written down in long form, like numbers and letters on paper, You'd have a warehouse full of shit, and it wouldn't matter if you read every page. You still wouldn't be able to put all the pieces together. You have to be able, at one point or another, you have to be able to admit to yourself that humans have senses for a reason. And what is, one of the things that it's for 
is to take in massive amounts of information and let the supercomputer that is your brain crunch those numbers. Because half of the time, if you like, if I visualize something, half of those numbers are already crunched. I have context. I have, you know, I have clues to what materials are made out of. I have so much stuff that if it was written down on paper, it's never going to come together in your mind, right? So that's one of the reasons why scientific visualization and visualization in general is really important. And that's one of the reasons why 3D, uh, uh, 3D animation and modeling and texturing and materials and gaming and all, all that stuff can support, you know, contextual learning in, like with, by using visualization. And <clears throat> anyway, so I'm going to leave it there. This has been Bitcoin and J.J. Thompson. I'm your host, David Bennett. Go out, do some killer stuff. Um, Don't buy shit coins. This is not investment advice. Buy Bitcoin. And I will link... uh, The video that came out of this project will be linked to this posting when I put it up. So you'll be able to go see it. Um, Remember, this was like... This was done in 2012. Uh, If I were to do it again, it would be a lot better but I mean it is what it is so cut me some slack throw me some love and I'll see you I'll see you on the other side